Good morning. My name is Chris Moeller. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my distinct honor to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning in John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of John, the Gospel of John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's ushers coming down the aisles right now ready to get God's Word into your hands. If you don't own a Bible, please accept this as a gift from us to you. Take it home, study it, uh, learn from it. We would love you to have that. How many of you are the type of person who you're, you're a planner? Everything's planned out. I've got a five-year plan. I've got a 10-year plan. I've got a 30-year plan even if you believe that you're going to live that long. Right? You're a planner and you know exactly what you have to do to get that plan accomplished. You know all of the little details from year one to year five to get to year five and then to your 10-year plan. And now, same people. How many of you have had something show up that completely ruins the plan? Anything? Yeah, I want to uh, introduce you to my daughter, Annie. She should be up on the screen here in a second. Everything was going according to plan. Eight years ago, in our first year of marriage, actually this is um, uh, our first year of marriage, our first year and a half or so of marriage, everything was going according to plan. My wife and I were on what we would call the five-year plan, like let's enjoy each other for five years and then we'll have kids. And about a, a, a little over a year into that plan, this bun showed up in the oven. <laughs> and you know there's those videos on the internet where the husbands find out that they're pregnant from, you know, their wife shows them the, the pregnancy test and, and they find out that they're pregnant together and they're so excited and the husband's flipping out and he's crying and he's jumping on, uh, faints or whatever. You've seen all, everyone's seen those videos, right? That wasn't me at all. <laughs> in fact... I found out that we were pregnant with Annie at 4 o'clock in the morning, being woken up from a dead sleep, and my wife saying, honey, we're for sure pregnant. And um, the reason why she said we're for sure pregnant is because the night before, in a very com comedic series of events with like six of my relatives in the room, you know, taking a pregnancy test and being inconclusive, and like, you're not supposed to find out with your family in the room, and... <laughs> It was just, it was one of those things where it's like, it was still inconclusive, but four o'clock in the morning, it was for sure positive. And she's like, honey, we are for sure pregnant. And in that moment, everything changed. In that single moment, every plan I had, every route in my life that I had planned out went into recalculation mode, like those old Garmin systems, like recalculating, recalculating. <laughs> and it just kept saying recalculating in my head because I couldn't quite figure, what am I going to do now? At the time, we were living in my parents' basement. We didn't own a home. We weren't renting anything at the time. We didn't have anything really of our own to speak of besides what was in storage at that time. We were in the process of trying to plant this church with Pastor Dave and Pastor Cal and their wives, and we were running into opposition from the township, like, is this thing ever going to happen or not? And also, at the same time, Pastor Cal and I were flying out every month on an airplane to go to Seattle to get our master's degree once a month, and, and did I mention we didn't have our own home, and we were living with family, <laughs> and, this and now we're pregnant, and I, I'm like, recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. What is going to happen? And um, everything changed. And my exact response to my wife at 4 a.m. was, um, she's like, honey, we're for sure pregnant. And I was like, can we talk about this tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> no joke, verbatim, can we talk about this tomorrow? And I think I realized also, I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I am actually excited, but can we, we need to talk about this tomorrow. I'm, 
I can't handle this right now. Not excited, not enthusiastic, but very much glass, half empty, perplexed, scared, even a little skeptical. You know, news, good news, bad news, good, bad news. Good news that can be bad news, bad news that ends up being good news. It always elicits a response, doesn't it? News, when you hear news of something, it elicits a response. Even this morning as I woke up and I looked on my phone and I had a notification from one of my friends who, whose father just suddenly passed away this morning. News elicits a response. In that moment, I had this response that was like, oh man, I, I'm so sorry. And we started this series last week when God draws near about when Jesus encounters different people in Scripture and how they don't leave the same because of it. And oftentimes we see in Scripture that when Jesus enters the life of someone, engages someone, calls someone, encounters someone, it drastically changes whatever plans that that person had in their lives and completely flips it upside down with this one call that Jesus says, follow me, will you follow me? And when people choose to follow Jesus, it changes absolutely everything. And the big idea for this morning is choosing to follow Jesus is just the beginning. Choosing to follow Jesus is just the beginning. And this morning's passage is about two men, Philip and Nathaniel, a couple of the first disciples to be called by Jesus. And it's my prayer this morning that you'll be able to find yourself in their story because they both respond to the news of Jesus in different ways. But before we get into that, let me pray over this message and over this morning. Father, we ask for your presence to be in this place, even as we've already felt it in this place. And worship, we ask, Lord, that you would speak boldly through me. Let my words be your words. Allow this message to be something that um, is coming straight from you into our hearts and transforms us from one degree of glory to another and changing hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And I know, Lord, that your word and you are powerful to do that. And I pray to that end that you would move boldly in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. John 1, starting in verse 43, says, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. There's two initial responses to the news of Jesus. And before we get to them, it's both Andrew's, or it's Philip's response and Nathanael's response. But before we get to that, I want to give you a little bit of a background of where this passage fits in the whole. I think that will be helpful. This passage is in the book of John, the Gospel of John, which is part of the four Gospels. But the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what's called the Synoptic Gospels. And they follow the lifeline of Jesus from start to finish um, in a synonymous way, in a similar way. So they're the synoptic gospels. A lot of the timeline is, is very similar, same stories in often cases and different perspectives in the first three books. Um, but then you get to John, and it's distinctly different. The Gospel of John is the most distinct gospel of all, given the nature of how it was written, specifically to the purpose of why it was written. It is historical, but John is very clearly trying to purpose his writing to draw the reader to a conclusion and draw the reader to a response and a call to believe. 
Everywhere in the book of John, you see, and they then believed because of what Jesus did. They then believed, and so they believed. You see this common theme of believing all through the book of John. In fact, John tells us in chapter 20, 30, and 31 why he wrote his account of Jesus' life. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The purpose of the book of John, the purpose of why John wrote this um, gospel, is to build a compelling argument that Jesus is who he says he is and that you need to believe it. You also find in this book seven I am statements, like when Jesus says, truly, truly, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or I am the vine, I am the gate, I am the bread of life. You also have seven miracles recorded in the Gospel of John, all pointing specifically to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. These miracles are very specifically saying that no one could accomplish this unless they were divine. No one could do what this man did unless he was God himself. And you see that from turning water to wine, healing of the official son, um, healing the man by the pool who was an invalid for 38 years, Jesus feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, walking on water, healing a man born blind. The guy hadn't seen it all ever, and now he sees. And then, of course, raising Lazarus from the dead, all pointing to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God. God himself. Chapter 1 of John is probably one of the most famous passages in all of scripture. You have a very compelling argument right at the the gate of this gospel of who Jesus is with 10 unique statements. He says he is the word, he is God, he is the creator, he is the giver of life, he is the light, he is full of grace, he is full of truth, he is timeless, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, said three times in that one chapter alone, and he is the son of God. John wastes no time at all cutting to the chase of who Jesus is right at the beginning of this gospel, and he's building the foundation of who Jesus is to make what he did all the more amazing and all the more reason to believe and thus follow him. So now let's look back at our buddy Phil. In verse 43, Jesus finds Philip. He finds him. He makes a decision to go from where he was to Galilee and finding Philip. Philip wasn't necessarily looking for Jesus. We don't see any indication in Scripture that Philip was on the search for the Messiah. Instead, it says that Jesus intentionally finds Philip And isn't it amazing to know in this room today that we have a Savior even today that is pursuing us and finding us where we're at? Verse 44 is interesting, though, isn't it? Philip was from the same city as Andrew and Peter. Why are they in the picture? They're in the picture because they're in the story just before this one. Andrew is one of the first disciples, along with the apostle John, to be called by Jesus. But notice what Andrew does. He responds with this. Jesus calls me, I'm going to follow you, but can you hold on one second? got to go get my brother Peter. He needs to follow you too. He needs this as much as I need this. I need to get my brother Peter. And so then they're all collectively following Jesus, and Jesus is like, hey, you know what? I need to go up to Galilee. Let's go up to Galilee. And so the next day Jesus decides to go to Galilee and specifically finds Philip from the same hometown. And maybe Andrew and Peter were like, wait a minute, Galilee? Can we stop by Bethsaida real quick? Um, We have a buddy, Phil. He needs this. 
Philip needs to, maybe they were high school friends. Maybe they grew up together as children playing. And whatever the case is, you can see that Jesus finds Philip from the same hometown as Andrew and Peter. And how many of us in this room have a testimony of knowing Jesus because a friend brought us to Jesus? Because a friend appealed to us about who Jesus is. God used a friend or family member in your life to bring you to the presence of Jesus, to examine his claims together, and being right there beside you when you receive Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing that God allows us that privilege to be able to walk alongside our friends and our loved ones, to bring them to the feet of Jesus Christ, to bring them to the cross of Jesus Christ, and see them receive and accept the gift of salvation from Jesus as their Savior? See, because when we fully understand the news of Jesus and we understand who Jesus is, we should be excited. Both Andrew and Philip, they ran to find someone else after they were found by Jesus. We should be excited. And that's the first response to the news of Jesus. It's Philip and Andrew's response. It's enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. He takes the news of Jesus after being found by Jesus, and he goes and finds someone about Jesus. He understood the value of this news. He understands the importance of this news and knows that it's too good not to share. The, the news of Jesus Christ, do you understand this, church? The news of Jesus Christ that you have, your salvation, your testimony, it is too good to hold to yourself. It's too good of news to say, you know what, That's, I'm just going to keep this for myself and I'm not going to let anybody else have it or know about it because this is really good for me but I don't want it to be good for anybody else. That's selfish. We need to take the news of Jesus just like Philip and Andrew and find our friends, find our family with the same news, news of Jesus. He's fired up about this news. And I think we get so fired up about so many different things today that are not worth getting fired up about. And when was the last time we were so fired up about the news of Jesus, we were so fired up about our relationship with Jesus that we went to go find people for him? We often get caught up in what someone else will think about us if we were to share our faith. And we live in a society and a culture that worship at the altar of convenience and comfort and that we're scared to be open about our faith because it might make someone else feel uncomfortable or offended or worse yet, it might result in them um, sparring an argument with you of topics that maybe you're not comfortable debating. But notice, Philip, Philip doesn't go to a random person. He goes to someone he knows. He goes to someone he loves, Nathaniel. And now there's definitely a place to go to random people as you're sitting in the coffee shop and you see someone sitting over a cup of coffee just staring into the wild blue yonder, clearly with something troubling them and that spirit nudging you in your soul, you know what, go talk to that person. They need someone right now. Like there's a place for that, but notice in this passage, that's not what Philip is doing. That's not the case here for Philip. It's obvious that Philip knew Nathaniel. There was a relationship there. There was a trust there. And we know this. Philip wasn't worried. He was excited. He wasn't scared. He was bold. And he found his friend Nathaniel and says, we found him. We found the one who Moses was talking about, who the prophets were talking about. It's Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. When, were, when was the last time you were that excited about Jesus? When was the last time you worshipped in such a way that reflected that same excitement about the Savior of the world? And how could anyone not respond this way to the news of Jesus? 
Well, let's look at how Nathaniel responds. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like, oh, Nate, man, such a killjoy. I'm really excited right now. The second response to the news of Jesus is often skepticism. Nathaniel's like, Phil, chill out, man. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I don't buy it. Don't waste my time. You don't know what you're talking about. And actually, this, 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 this thing about Nazareth is interesting. And many scholars believe because Nathaniel said specifically about Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's actually making kind of a jab at the city of Nazareth. But at the same time, many scholars believe that he probably knew the prophecies enough to know that the Messiah wasn't to come out of Nazareth. The Messiah was to come out of Bethlehem. And so he's shooting straight with his buddy, Phil. And it's like, Phil, we know this, man. He doesn't come from Nazareth. The Messiah comes from Bethlehem. And of course, we know that Jesus did come from Bethlehem, but at the time, that news wouldn't have been common knowledge to know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They would have known that he came from Nazareth because that's where he spent most of his life growing up. And so Nathaniel's shooting straight and like, Phil, you don't get it. This, I'm not, I don't buy it. You don't know what you're talking about. And how many of you have dealt with someone like that, a skeptic, someone in your life who, who is like, you know what, I just, that's, not, that's not for me right now. Christianity? Can anything good come out of Christianity? Church? You want me to go to church? Have we ever seen anything good come out of church? That's good for you, but you know what? Don't force your beliefs on me. Oh, you want to talk about Jesus? Well, what do you believe about evolution? What do you believe about science? What do you believe about social justice? How can you believe in the Bible when it's so outdated and not relevant to today's issues? How can you believe in a God who allows suffering and evil in the world? Or how about the other face of skepticism that we see in the church a lot? You know, I'm going to believe the good things. I'm going to believe the things I want to in the Bible, but I'm going to kind of just push the other things off to the side that I don't want to believe in. I'll just not believe in those because I'm just going to believe what I want to believe. I don't want to believe in the hard stuff. I don't want to be, have to really confront, confront any thing that's hard in scripture, so I'll just skip over those parts. The problem with this stance is you're not actually taking a stance. There's a logical fallacy that happens when you say part of the Bible is truth and other parts are not. Either you believe that God's word is God's word and infallible, or you don't. You can't have a combination of both because convenience and truth are not the same thing. And often, we know this to be true, truth isn't often convenient, is it? The truth often hurts. The truth is exactly what we need, but it's probably not the most convenient thing in our lives right now. Tim Keller said it this way, talking about people who pick and choose what they want to believe in the Bible. He says, I'm not proving that you have to trust everything in the Bible. I'm only proving this. If you don't, you're actually listening to yourself when you think you're following Jesus. There's so much more that could be said regarding the logic and the proofs and the validity of Scripture as the infallible Word of God. But that's not what Philip goes to here when he's responding to his skeptic friend, Nathaniel. What does Philip do? How does he respond to the skeptic in his life? How should we respond to the skeptics in our life that we're trying to reach for Jesus? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip's like, I don't know. But you have to come and see. You have to come and see. We can talk about the other stuff later. We can get to the, the proofs and the, the theology and everything. We can get to that later. But right now, I just need you to come with me. You need to come and see Jesus. 
Philip was using his relationship. He was using the relational equity that he had in this relationship, putting it all on the line to get his friend into the presence of God, into the presence of Jesus. He wasn't walking him through a 15-step proof of philosophical, theological concepts. He said, come with me. Come and see. You have to see this. And so many people are scared to share their faith because they're worried that they won't be able to win arguments or debates or uh, might... They, they might just offend the person that they're talking to. But do you know there's one thing that a person, a skeptic, anybody else, besides, anybody else, they cannot argue this with you. There's one thing in your life that they can't argue with. It's your testimony. They can't argue that. They can't argue. They can't say that what Jesus did in your life didn't happen because you know that to be true. You know what Jesus did in your life. You know and seen with your own eyes and have experienced in your own heart that you were once dead, but now are alive. You were once lost, but now you are found. You were once blind, but now you can see all because of Jesus Christ. And they don't have to understand how that happened, but they can't tell you it didn't. And so what does Philip do when he reaches his buddy Nathaniel? He's like, this guy changed my life. And what's amazing is it took one sentence from Jesus. Hey, will you follow me? And it changed Philip's life. And he's like, you have to come and see. You have to come and see. And so what does Nathaniel do? He's still not convinced, but he's like, okay, chill out. I'll come with you. I'll come with you. And Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him. This is verse 47 now. And Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. The old King James Version says, in whom there is no guile. If that's helpful to anyone in the room, great. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Now notice what Jesus did here. He reached Nathanael right where he was at. He knew Nathanael's character. He knew Nathanael's heart. And Jesus appeals to the skeptic in two different ways. The first one is he knows your heart. He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what you need to be convinced that he is who he says he is. And so when he says the statement about, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, what he's saying is he's responding to Nathanael the same way that Nathanael responded to Philip. Philip was like, hey, We found Jesus of Nazareth. This is the Messiah. And he's like, wait a minute. Let me shoot straight with you here, Phil. The Messiah comes from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. This can't be the the guy. And Jesus, in the same way, is like, hey, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. This guy shoots straight. This guy tells it how it is. This guy is a straight shooting son of someone from Israel. (laughs) And... Jesus acknowledges Nathaniel's character, his candor, his, his, the reality of who Nathaniel was, and that took Nathaniel off guard, doesn't it? You know when someone talks to you the same way that you would want them to talk to you, and you're like, whoa, 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 how do, you, do we know each other? Like, how do, you, how do you know me? And notice what Jesus says. He says, remember the fig tree. He says, Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You can almost see Nathaniel's face. It's like the face of the antagonist in a movie who thought that they were in control up until the very last minute when they realized, oh no, I'm not in control anymore. This face of dumbfoundedness, this face of speechlessness, the face of amazement. But what, what is the deal with the fig tree? Why did, why did Nathaniel go from complete unbelief and now, Jesus, you are the son of God, the king of Israel, because he said something about a fig tree. 
Does it mean that he was just sitting under a fig tree when Philip came to tell him about Jesus? And the reason why I don't think that that's necessarily the case and why most scholars don't believe that that's the case is because that doesn't really seem like a compelling argument that would change a skeptic's mind from not believing this guy is God to believing this guy is God. Like if the other day I'm sitting in the coffee shop and then this morning someone comes up to me and, and they say, hey, how's it going? I'm like, how do you know me? And uh, hey, I saw you in the coffee shop the other day working on your message. I don't think I would instantly jump to the conclusion that they were divine quite yet. <laughs> I would probably be like, hey, I'm at the coffee shop a lot. I'm not impressed, so how, how do you know me? But what most scholars believe in, what I think is happening here, is because he jumped from unbelief to belief in that single comment about the fig tree, Jesus was, was going for the jugular. Something happened at the fig tree. Something happened significant at the fig tree that only Nathaniel would have known about, that no one else could possibly have known about, that Jesus then all of a sudden brought to the light. And he's like, whoa, how do you know about the fig tree? Did Nathaniel kill someone and bury him under a fig tree? Did he steal figs when he was a kid from his neighbor's fig tree and never told anybody about it? Was there a loved one who died and then he found out about it while he was sitting under a fig tree and that reality sunk in and that was a very huge moment of despair in his life that he didn't think he could go any farther in? What happened under the fig tree? We don't know, but we know this. It was significant enough and it was something that Nathaniel probably didn't think anybody else knew about, but Jesus then brings it to the light and meets him right there. Not in judgment, not in ridicule, but it's like, I saw you. You know the fig tree? I was there. I saw you. Jesus goes straight for the heart. And also, he knows your past. Whatever it was at the fig tree that was so, um, so significant, Whatever that circumstance was, Jesus knew about it. And he meets Nathaniel right there. And he meets us right there. Your circumstance don't keep you from following Jesus. He finds you. He meets you right where you're at. He is the solution. In fact, he knew you even before the foundations of the earth. In Psalm 139, it says, He knit you together in your mother's womb and that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows you, and you are known by the creator of the universe. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it great to be known? Just in any, in, in any context, isn't it good to be known, like be known by someone, especially known by someone who you hold a high respect for or high honor for? Do you ever wonder why people freak out when they meet a celebrity? Have you ever, have you ever seen that? Have you ever met a celebrity, and you're like, oh my goodness, my heart's fluttering, everything is... You know Why? It's because for a fleeting moment, maybe a minute, maybe two minutes, that person is knowing you. They know who you are, at least enough to say hi and to shake your hand and to meet you. And for a split second, someone famous who is known by the entire world is now taking the second to know who you are. And it makes you feel special, doesn't it? I want to illustrate this point a little bit more by showing you this video. Check this out. Hey, Chris, uh, listen, I, I just wanted to tell you that it's really starting to bother me. Everywhere I go, people tell me I look like you, that I talk like you, that my hand motions are like you, and everything I do, it's like you do better than I do. And they just keep comparing me to you all the time. And uh, you know what? I, I just know that I can't sing like you. Watch this. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. 
I see, I can't even hold a tune. It's terrible. So listen, I want you to give me some singing lessons. Next time I see you, come to the Walk in the Word conference and uh, we'll have a sit down, we'll have a cup of coffee and we'll, we'll iron this whole thing out, okay? Thanks. Mike Seaver knows who I am, right? I mean, I had a moderate to severe freak out moment when that video hit my phone screen. Why? Because like, I have a huge respect for Kirk Cameron, and I don't know if I necessarily see the resemblance, or now you're only going to think that as I'm talking and moving my hands and such, but that made me feel really special, and that video actually came from Kristen Wissen, our, our wonderful pastor's wife, and, and she was at an event, and he was there, and she's like, you have to do this, <laughs> and <laughs> so, and he did, and what's crazy is I'm sure five minutes later, he completely forgot that he did that, right? But it felt really special to be known by someone famous, even for a split second. But let me tell you this, family, church, Jesus is way more than just someone famous. Jesus is a far greater person and more important than any other person that has ever or will ever existed. And he not only knows who you are, he made you and he loves you. And he sees you right now. He truly knows you and he wants you to truly know him. And to be known by Jesus is truly an amazing thing. He knows your heart. You may be hurting right now. You may be on the brink of, of despair. You may be in the pit. You may be sinking in sin. You may be addicted. You may be uh, wallowing in depression or despair or stuck in something. But Jesus knows and he meets you right now there. He loves you. He is right there in the midst of the discouragement. He is right there in the midst of your heartbreak, in your hurt, and he says, I'm here. Let's get through this together. Let's do this together. Follow me. Would you yield your will to his will this morning, right now even, with whatever you're going through, with whatever fig tree you're sitting under, and say, Jesus, you are who you say you are, and I will follow you. In Hebrews 4, we have such a great, encouraging passage of who our Savior is. Starting at verse 14 in Hebrews 4, it's on the screen. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And here's what I love about the story of Nathaniel. In this moment, he's now convinced. He now believes. He said, Jesus, you are the king. You are the Messiah. You are the son of God. And notice what Jesus does, how he responds to Nathaniel. Jesus answered him in verse 50. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, now you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's like Jesus was saying, You think it's pretty amazing that I know you? You think it's amazing that I knew about the fig tree? Just wait till you get to know me. You think it's amazing that I know you? You think that's something? Just wait till you get to know me. The third thing this morning is when I follow Jesus, he promises greater things. And the first thing is you will get to know God himself. It's an invitation. It's a welcoming call into your life that says, the only thing keeping you from following me, Jesus says, is you. 
When you choose to follow Jesus, you don't just get the blessings of God, you get God himself, and you will see greater things than these. If you are someone in the room who knows that to be true, raise your hand. That you can truly say, without Jesus in my life, I would not be better off. I would be worse off. Even though the circumstance of when Christ found you was possibly under the fig tree, that under the fig tree moment, maybe a time of despair, a struggle, a hard circumstance, you were sinking in quicksand and he reached down to grab you, to pull you out. How much better off are you now with him than you would have ever been without Jesus? And if you're like me, when Christ gripped your heart, you wouldn't even have been able to imagine the differences, the transformation, the miracles, the moved mountains in your life that resulted because of following Jesus. And get this, you didn't even realize how much you needed him, did you? You didn't even, that's why Jesus has to find us. We didn't even realize we needed him in that moment. And if you remember, you also didn't have to clean yourself up in order to follow Jesus. He met you right where you were at. Nathaniel was skeptical, probably just appeasing his friend Phil and, not, uh, and going just because he didn't want the relational conflict with Phil to see Jesus. And Jesus met him right there, interrupted his life, drew near to Nathaniel and said, follow me. And what he found out was that's just the beginning. Choosing to follow Jesus is just the beginning and the rest is greater. But notice, I didn't say, and also scripture doesn't say that the rest is easier but it is greater. And I look back after the last eight years, next year, my daughter Annie, or next week rather, my daughter Annie turns eight. And I look back and I see how great it is to have her in our lives along with her two younger siblings, Evie and Gabe, who came shortly after. And I've seen so much blessing in these three and seeing my wife thrive and champion the mom thing and how parenting together has grown us closer together and and though I was sitting under the fig tree when I found out that we were pregnant with her I look back now after the last eight years and I think how could I have ever wanted it any differently how could I have ever wanted my five-year plan to happen what a joy what a blessing it is what a gift was life easier goodness no life was not easier kids are hard (laughs) We didn't know what we were doing as parents, and, but we knew this, Christ is faithful. And he who calls you, scripture says, is faithful, and he will do it. He is faithful to do the greater things when he says and promises you that greater things will happen when you follow me. Without that interruption in our lives in that season, we wouldn't have known how to pray like we know how to pray now. We wouldn't have known the power of community and wisdom of godly friends and family who helped us in the hardest things. Like, what do we do How do we change a diaper? How do we deal with sick kids? How do we deal with night terrors? How do we deal with temper tantrums in the grocery store? How do we do loving people in our lives, family members who gathered around us to help us through this, the power of community in Christ? We wouldn't have had such a rich understanding of God's love and grace and blessing in our lives. We wouldn't have ever learned how to budget. We wouldn't have ever learned the importance of relying on our Lord in absolutely everything, even the smallest of things. You see, because God's timing, when he's calling you to follow him, though it may not match your timing, it is perfect. And you will see greater things than these when you choose to follow him, that choice to respond to Jesus' call is just the beginning. But that's not all. Get this. 
the greater things, the changes, the transformation in your life, the blessings of following Jesus, those are great things, but that's not it. There is more. Jesus says in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here's the second thing. You will see heaven. You will see heaven. Nathaniel, who along with Philip knew the Old Testament scriptures, or at least enough to know what Jesus was referencing here. Does anybody know what Jesus was referencing here with the ladder? Did I hear it? Someone say Jacob's ladder? In Genesis 28, he's talking about Jacob's ladder. Jacob, after stealing his brother's birthright from Esau, he fled Esau because he thought his brother was going to kill him, found himself in the wilderness at night, and what he did is he got tired, as we all do when we're fleeing people. And so he's in the wilderness, and he laid his head down on a rock and had a dream. And now many scholars don't know as if he had the dream because he was sleeping on a rock or if this, this dream was divinely appointed, which we know it was, because in that dream he saw a ladder going from where he was to heaven. And at the top of the ladder was a voice of God as he saw angels ascending and descending on the ladder. This voice in Genesis 28, 15 says, Behold, I am with you and, I, and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Does that sound like Nathaniel? And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now notice the difference in these stories. On Jacob's ladder, God was in heaven speaking down, and the angels were going up and down on the ladder. In Jesus' statement, Jesus is the ladder. The son of man that the angels are ascending and descending on. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I am the son of man. I am the bridge to heaven. I am the bridge to an unseparated, unhindered, rich and close relationship with God himself. I am here and I'm at your level. Jesus says, follow me and you will see heaven open because when you follow me, everything I'm about to do will lead me to the cross. When you follow me, you will see everything that I will perform, all the miracles I will perform, all of the things I will say, all of the claims I will make, fulfilling the prophecies in the Old Testament and the prophets, and I will lead myself to the cross, and I will die the death that you deserve because of your sin, and I won't stay dead, but I will rise again from the dead on the third day, defeating death and sin for you, so that heaven can be open to you, and that you will see me as your Savior and have a relationship with God himself. You will see heaven. And notice he says this, truly, truly. I thought that was interesting. It's used 25 times as I studied this in this week. It's used 25 times in the book of John. And we know that when words are doubled or tripled in Scripture, it's used for emphasis. And, you know, in Revelation when it says, holy, 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 it doesn't mean that God is just holy. It means he's holy, holy, holy. And this, he's saying truly, truly, and that word truly is actually an Aramaic word that Jesus is using that can be translated amen. And so he's saying amen, amen, and then says his statement, and we use the word amen when we pray. We say something to the Lord, and we pray to the Lord, and we appeal to the Lord, and we thank the Lord, and then at the end of that prayer we say amen, which means let this be true. Let it be, as we've often heard amen translated. Let this be true. But what we see here is that Christ, in being the only person in Scripture to double it and use it in a statement about himself, is saying, not let this be true. When he says it before a statement, it means this is true. 
There is no debate about this. This isn't skepticism right here. This is absolute truth. And then he says something about who he is when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life because Jesus is the way. This isn't up for debate. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the gate. He is the ladder. He is the vine. He is the light. And he is the bread of life. And he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The entire Gospel of John drives to this very thing, this decision. Will you believe the claims of Jesus Christ? Will you believe the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Will you believe in the salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ? And will you respond and be obedient to Christ's call to you right now in whatever circumstance or situation you're in or whatever season of life you're in to follow him? And for those of you in the room, those Nathaniels in the room who maybe are still skeptical who need Jesus to meet you right there at the fig tree, who need that fig tree moment. This is my prayer for you, and I would encourage you to pray this over your skeptic friends as well in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And I want you to check out the story of a wonderful couple in our church who are being obedient to the call to follow Jesus in this season of their lives.